0: Friends, we continue our study on Zechariah, and I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah, the penultimate book of the Old Testament. I say penultimate because it's just a cool word. Okay, that wasn't that funny means second to last, second to last book in the Old Testament. So Zechariah, if you don't know where it is uh, and you can find Matthew, we'll just swing a left a few pages, right? Or use your index if you need to, whatever, it's cool. But we're here and we're turning our attention today to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. Our topic today is about deliverance, deliverance. There's a lot of things that happen in these verses that we'll look at this morning. But the bottom line is that God delivers his people. You think about God's relationship with his people when his people were Israel. They had gone to Egypt in order to survive a famine in their land. And God protected his line, his people, through Abraham's family. But then there came, as Scripture says, a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And that Pharaoh then took and enslaved the Israelites people. So they were in captivity and slavery in Egypt. In their slavery, they finally cried out to God and they said, God, this is too terrible. Get us out of here. Set us free. So God brought Moses, the deliverer. And you know the stories about the Exodus in the book of Exodus. If you don't know them, go back and read them. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament. And so you read those stories about how God got them out of slavery and out of captivity and brought them through to the promised land. He delivered them from their captivity. And what we see happening today as we look at Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 is a deliverance as well. If we remember, and if you've been here, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, and the beginning of the book of Zechariah starts with God's people who had again been in captivity, and the temple had been destroyed, and some of them got to come back to their homeland, and they started rebuilding the temple, but then some bad guys who were locally present said to them all sorts of ugly things to try to discourage them and threaten them, so they stopped working on the temple. But God said to His people, You've got to build the temple. His temple was symbolic of his presence with them, but it was also the place where they would worship him. They didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have, and they couldn't worship freely in various churches of various denominations like we have. So in order to worship God, they needed the temple as the centerpiece of that worship. So God told them to do that. You see it in the book of Ezra. And then God called the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to come and encourage the people through their prophecy. You'll remember then that they got started again. Uh, And uh, so Zechariah is preaching about these things and encouraging them and things and challenging them. But then there's a break there. It starts in chapter 7. Chapter 7, you remember, in the fourth year of King Darius. So two years. Two years had gone by since the beginning of the book of Zechariah. And you have this chapter 7 and 8 and then in verse chapter 9, an oracle. An oracle is like a sermon today, a proclamation. And that one, chapter 9 and 10 and 11. But then we pick up in chapter 12, our topic for today, a second oracle. This second oracle has many things similar to the one in chapters 9, 10, 11. Many of the same themes, judgment, hope future salvation, God's victory, Christ's reign. And it even draws upon the Exodus motifs in chapters 12 and 14. That's why I use that as an introduction. But what it tells us is this. God himself will move on behalf of his people. You might write that one down. God himself will move on behalf of his people. Just as you heard Mike testify about tithing, How he didn't know how it was going to add up, but somehow God did it. God moved on his behalf. When we are obedient to God, God takes care of the results, and he will bless us and provide for us like we can't imagine what he will do. So we have to ask this question. And I've asked it this way many times before. In your life, what is there that only God can do? It's not something that you can cause by your own mind or your own hands. Not something that another person you know can cause or an organization can cause. But something so big that you've been praying for, that you're burdened for, that only God can do. It may be something that's got you in captivity. Some sinfulness, some habit. And you need delivered from that. It may be something that you don't know how the answer is going to come and where it's going to fill in the blanks. But you need God's provision for that. So when we ask this question, what is there in our life that only God can do? Let me point us to our scripture memory verse for the month. And Leslie will put that up there for us. And it's from chapter 4. And so this is where we started this month. We've made a lot of haste in the month of um, October. And we've got one more Sunday left. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Let's say it together. Zechariah 4, 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 4, 6. Pray with me. So God, we hear again those words that you spoke to the prophet Zechariah. And that he was to encourage your people then. And the leader of your people at that time, Zerubbabel, that it wasn't by any power or might of their own, but it was going to be by your spirit, the sovereign God almighty of all the universe, that you were going to take care of the needs of your people. God, that's the same today. We get ourselves in trouble when we try to do it our own way, and we confess that. I know in my own mind, I have to think about that right now with a few examples. And there are probably others in this place that know where they've tried to do it on their own. And they need to prayerfully, courageously, and obediently surrender to you. So God, would this be a day of surrender when we look forward to your deliverance? We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody says, Amen. Amen. The first point to fill out on your outline this morning is that God delivers his people from enemies. God delivers his people from enemies. Now, uh, you may not look at your circumstances as an enemy, but if your circumstances cause you to disobey God, they're an enemy. If your circumstances tempt you to anxiety, worry, or fear, they are an enemy. And God can deliver you from enemies of any kind. So I want to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, and I'll make some comment along the way. Again, you know, we've got all sorts of layers of history here where he's alluding back at certain points and he's pointing forward at other points. And we'll try to make sense of this to see the principle at work that God delivers his people from his enemies. So this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So he's speaking not of the northern kingdom, but of his people as a whole again, even though he's speaking to the people in Jerusalem who would have traditionally been the tribe of Judah. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, so that's the Lord God not Jesus, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him declares. So just in case you want to know who God is, he's the God who made everything. He's the God who made you. So have you got that straight? Everybody nod your head yes. Okay, this is the God of everything who was and is and is to come. Verse two, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding people's reeling. Only place in the Old Testament where there's a phrase, anything like this. Matter of fact, this phrase, a cup that sends people reeling. In other words, when they drink this cup, it's going to be like they get sick and they've got to run out because they're going to throw up or something, right? It it tears them up on the inside or it makes them nauseous or sick. So immediately you have this crazy kind of word picture that God's going to make Jerusalem like a cup that makes other nations sick. What do you think it means? It means, well, we're going to find out here. Look, Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Ah, here's a key to what it means. So other nations are going to come against God's people, the capital city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. So other nations are going to come against them, And look what it says. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. So you got it? You see, he's talking. And when he uses this phrase, on that day... The phrase on that day is used 16 times in chapters 12 and chapters 13. Does anybody know what a phrase on that day means in the Bible? What day are they talking about? The day that Christ returns, right? They're talking about end times. It's eschatology. So even though he's talking a long time ago now for us, he's talking about the day that other nations will come and attack God's people in Jerusalem in the future, a day that's even future for us when Christ returns to take his people to heaven. Say all who try to move it will injure themselves into verse three. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. Well, we're thinking, well, this is a modern time. There's not horses and riders and warfare. Well, it's, you know, symbolic, right? Think about what could happen and what that would look like with modern weapons of warfare. Verse five. Then the people of Jerusalem, oh, excuse me, then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, "The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God." In other words, they don 't have any fear. Go on verse six on that day there's that phrase again, I will make the leaders of Jerusalem like a fire pot and a woodpile like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. You get the idea of this picture, a cup that will send the other nations reeling. In other words, nobody's going to be able to come against Jerusalem. Nobody's going to be able to stand against God's people. God delivers his people from their enemies, even though all the nations come against them. How many of you have felt like not just one, but everything in your life is going wrong at one time? I mean, you're like, how can it get any worse than this? How much further down can I go? God, what are you up to? And maybe it's that God's trying to show you the thing that he's talking about in Zechariah chapter 12. That circumstances are so bad, but he's so big. Everything's coming against you, but he is for you. Can I get an amen? On that day, verse 8, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. Now, if you didn't get it before, you get it clearly there at the end of verse 9. He's saying nobody's coming against you. Even weak people are going to be strong people. Even feeble-minded people are going to be wise people. My people, nobody's going to be able to stand against them because I stand for them. God's deliverance is coming for his people. God is a shield. You think back to Exodus. In Exodus chapter 14. The Egyptian army is chasing God's people. I mean, they don't have chariots. They don't have horses. They're walking along with their carts and their donkeys and their oxen and whatever they could carry as they're trying to move out of the land. So they're not moving fast. And God's people look back and they see the clouds of dust from the Egyptian chariots. And they say, okay, gig is up. We're dead. And God says, you know that pillar of fire I put in front of you to lead you by day? I'm going to put it behind you to be a rear guard. I'm going to freak these people out. They're not going to get you because I'm for you. I'm going to deliver you. Read Exodus, right? God cares for his people. Your question of application on that first point asks, How has God strengthened me? How has God strengthened me? The reason I... Ask that question in this is because of what you saw in verse 7, 8, and 9. And even before that, in verse 5 and 6, where God says, I'm going to make my people strong. So it's not just that I'm going to do supernatural things to the enemies that come against my people, but my people will have a part in defending themselves. I'm going to make them strong, and they're going to know it wasn't their strength because it is so supernatural, so otherworldly. So I have to ask us, friends, when we're considering deliverance from our enemies, whatever they are, how has God strengthened you? What have you seen in your life already where you know it was God that shielded you, God that protected you, God that made you strong, God that gave you the ability to do something you could not do on your own, and you knew it was God? I think we probably need some amen and hallelujah moments right now. Thank you, John Martin. When we recognize. The divine. Supernatural. Merciful. And gracious movement. Of God almighty. In our lives. Not for our glory. But for his glory. Whoo! Can I get an amen? Morning. Your second point on your outline. Is that God moves his people to mourning. Now, friends, the reason I made a big deal about that last point there in the end when I said when I recognize it is because when we see what God has done for us, it ought to change something within us. Instead of us being cocky and thinking we got it all going on and we can do it all ourselves. It ought to move us to brokenness and humility. That even though God has done something great in us, through us and for us, it wasn't us. It was God and it was for his glory. And we realize that he's God and we're not, right? That God moves his people to mourning. So look at this change that happens. I mean, in verses 1 through 9, you have this oracle of here's this great war, and everybody's going to come against Jerusalem, and God's going to make the people strong, and they're going to whoop up on all the enemies. But look at the change that happens. Verse 10 And I will pour out on the house of David, so that's a euphemism for Israel, God's people, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. I love that phrase. Can you imagine what it would be like? If God were to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on your life in our church. Where it isn't just one of us or two of us or a handful of us, but God's spirit so moved through this place that we went, "Whoa, this is not church like normal. Yeah. Friends, it's been a few years since I've sensed God's Spirit moving so powerfully that it was palpable in our midst. I see it in individuals here, but I'm talking about as a whole, where God's Spirit comes down on this place and we know something different happened when we gather together for a prayer meeting or a worship service. Can I ask you, can I beg you to pray with me that God would do that for us again? That this church body would be so filled with God's spirit that we can't help it when we come together. What is that going to look like? You'll know it when you see it. When God spills over the spirit of grace and supplication. So look at what happened to Israel there. They will look on me the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. We have a few sweet families in our church that have lost babies. The world says stillborn, we say heavenborn. And there's a brokenness that happens in that that is hard to explain. God says when his spirit comes on you you will be broken over your sin like you are broken over the loss of a child how many of us have been broken over our sin that way that we've been moved to mourning on that day the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping Of Hadad, Ramon, and the plain of Gideon. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan in the house of David and their wives. The clan in the house of Nathan and their wives. What it's saying is this will touch every family. And it's not going to be one person or one family that mourns over their sins. It's everybody and the rest of the clans and their wives. Leslie, would you put our application question up there? I don't remember what it says. I knew that one word. When have I wept over my sin? Not just felt bad. Not just felt guilty because I was caught. But broken. Weeping. Job says to God in chapter 13, verse 23, how many iniquities and sins have I committed? Reveal to me my transgressions and sin. Some of us need to have that sort of moment today. Right now. If not now, it needs to be soon. And we need to say, okay, God, I'm tired of messing around. I'm tired of fooling around. I'm tired of just showing up on Sunday, putting on my Sunday face and saying, I'm fine. How are you? Psalm 78, 32 says, despite all this, they kept sinning and did not believe his wonderful works. Now, you have to go back and read chapter 78 or Psalm 78 to see what all this means. But let me summarize for our context here. Despite sitting in Pastor Aaron's sermon where he preaches on Zechariah 12 that clearly calls us to brokenness and mourning over our sin, we keep on sinning. You can sit here and listen to me today and you can make a choice right now. Some of you already have that you're not going to repent because you're worried what people will think. You're worried how it will change your life. You're worried what God will do if you get honest with him. So you would rather just sit there and think about anything else than about the Holy Spirit convicting you of your own sinfulness right now and being moved to mourning over your sin. Let me remind us what our friend down in Kansas, James Bryan Smith, says about sin. He said, God is against my sin because he is for me. God is against my sin because he is for me. That's tweet worthy right there. That's easy. God is against my sin because he is for me. God is not telling us to confess our sin because he's angry at us, because he hates us, because he wants to hurt us, but because he loves us. And he loves us so much, he won't let us stay in our sinfulness. And he wants us to be broken and mourning and weep over our sin in order that we might feel the full extent of his love for us. First John, chapter two, verse one and two says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with him, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Can I get an amen? That God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, in order to die for your sins, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, in order that you might be saved, in order that you might be cleansed, in order that you might know the full love of God for you. Can I get an amen? Let's turn to chapter 13. Your next point, Miss Leslie can put up there. I got to get a hymnal. I forgot to bring a hymnal with me. I will resist the temptation to bust out in song, but I've got to get a hymnal. Look at those points. God cleanses his people from their sin. Somebody help me out here. Do we have the hymn in our hymnal? There is a fountain filled with blood. Yep, 142. Pull your hymnal out of the pew back in front of you. Let me read the scripture. On that day, there's that phrase again when Christ comes back. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The hymn I just asked you to turn to, 142, There Is a Fountain, is about this scripture verse. Tied in with lots of others, but that's where the Genesis came from. William Cowper, who wrote the hymn, says so. Verse 2, On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land, and if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. Okay, pretty gruesome. What he's saying is false prophets are going to be called out. God's people will be so pure that they'll be able to see when a prophet's telling them a lie. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic visions. He will not put on a prophet's garments. There were certain clothes that they wore uh, or an hair in order to deceive of hair. Excuse me, not hair. He will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. In other words, the guys who are false prophets are going to lie about being prophets because they don't want to be killed. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer the wounds I was given by the house of my friend. In other words, he escaped from someone trying to beat up on him. He's lying about it. But let's go back to verse one. There's a fountain. God cleanses his people from his sins. William Cowper had suffered from a severe depression since the death of his mother when he was six years old. And even though he was an intelligent man, and he was applying to the bar to be a lawyer, at the prospect of his final examination, he had a nervous breakdown. So much so that he had to be put in a mental asylum there in London, For 18 months time. During that time he began to read the Bible. To help bring him some peace of mind. When he left St. Albans. He moved in with an old family friend. John Newton. You may recognize the name John Newton is. The author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton helped Cowper recover. And daily as they read scripture. As they prayed together. As they wrote poetry. As they wrote hymns. Life began to return to Cowper more than ever before. There is a fountain filled with blood is one such him. It's a dramatic illustration of Cowper's faith, and I want to read it for you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath the flood. Lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power, till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more, be saved to sin no more, be saved to sin no more, till all the ransom church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Amen. And shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme. And shall be till I die. Cowper knew. I pray you know. That the blood of Jesus takes away the sins of the world. And that if you haven't already trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you would do that today, confessing that you are a sinner, trusting Christ to save you from your sins and setting you free that you might be clean. Our application question there asks, how has God purified me? How's God purified me? Jeremiah 33, 8 says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. Psalm 51, 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse my sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and by renewing by the Holy Spirit. John Mark worked on that one for Awana just this week. Titus 3.5. If you don't know it, write it down. Memorize it. Titus 3.5. God has purified you. I hope you know it. I hope you can write it down. I hope you don't just look at this question and say, okay, I filled in the blank, purified. What's next on the outline, Pastor Aaron? move to your fourth point. God refines his people for himself. Chapter 13, verse seven, eight, nine. It resumes the shepherd motif of chapter 11, referring to God as a shepherd. And we know that Jesus is called the good shepherd from the New Testament. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, and yet one will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. This is a picture of God refining, of taking all those that call him in two thirds. Being no more killed, but one third being his people, that doesn't mean the other two thirds are going to hell. That's not what this is talking about. This is a picture of God purifying of God demonstrating for others to see his righteousness. So let's look at your final application question. And When you fill in the blank, don't close your outline. Why do I belong to God? Why do I belong to God? Because he called us, right? Because we trusted Christ, right? Write down Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God works in you to call you to himself. Write down Ephesians two four and 5. But God who is rich in mercy. Because he loves us so much. Even though we were dead in our sins. He gave us life and raised us from the dead. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. That's Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. I kind of mixed up two translations, pardon me. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes in Jesus has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. I belong to God because God loved me. He called me and he gave me Jesus as a way to make a relationship with him. So when I think about God's deliverance in my life. I need to lay it on that foundation. That it's God's invitation to me to trust Christ as my savior. It's God's grace on me to give me Christ as a savior. It's God's mercy for me that wipes away all my sins. And what should my response be? Humility before God. Brokenness over my sin. Because I've allowed the sovereign God of the whole universe to purify me. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that um, even though some things are hard to hear, they're the truth. And just like a doctor delivering a diagnosis that is life-threatening and fear-inducing, he delivers the diagnosis because he wants to introduce us to the cure to save us. The same thing is true here. We know we're sinners. And we know we need grace. We know we can't do it on our own. So God, we come before you humble. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move in each and every life. We pray that you would move. And save those who have yet to trust Christ as their Savior. Purify those of us who have trusted Christ. But have allowed some sinful habit or ongoing sinful lifestyle to cloud who we are in you. God, we beg of you. In Jesus' name, amen.